Hello and welcome to the Low Tech Lecture Series. The following is an unedited lecture of a topic tangential to the Low Technology Institute. The ideas expressed are those of the speaker. We hope you find it informative and entertaining. As it is unedited, audio quality varies. Stay tuned after the lecture for information about the Low Technology Institute and its other offerings, or find us at lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. Thanks and enjoy. This lecture series is a recording of the class Archaeology in the Prehistoric World from the spring semester of 2017, taught by Scott Johnson. Today we're going to get into the classic. The classic is what you think of very likely when you think of the ancient Maya. Um, big sites, uh, stratified societies, rulers, writing, lots of religious uh, mishigas craziness going on. Um, Basically, what you think of when you think of the Maya is probably the classic. Um, and as I've mentioned before, the classic is traditionally defined by when we have full writing. And what I mean by full writing is um, anything I say can be put down in writing. Our writing system is considered a full writing system, right? Because I can write out the word melancholy, and you can read it and know what I'm talking about. There are other writing systems, like the Aztec writing system and the notation system of the Inca that we're going to meet later. These were not full writing systems. These were partial writing systems because they depended on, they're basically mnemonic devices to remind you of things, but they weren't like full sentences. Um, and you couldn't write down, for example, melancholy. So the Maya had one of the full writing systems in the new, one of the, the only full writing system that we know of in the new world. This is Copan. These are, each one of these is a glyph block, basically a word in glyphs, and it's a history of that site. So. Instead of having to guess um, at um, uh, what do you call them? political relations, uh, religious ideas, and things like that, we can just read them because they have written on large stone monuments. They also wrote on paper folding accordion-style books called codices. Um, C-O-D-I-C-E-S, codices. Um, or codex for a singular, uh, but it's a hot tropical environment. And what happens to organics in hot tropical environments? Everything. Uh, everything disappears because of organic uh, bacterial um, activity. OK. Holy rulers. I'm saying the word holy rulers on purpose, um, because we are dealing with, again, not a society that separates church and state, or you know, religious institutions and political institutions. The ruler is a religious figure. Um, we see them here depicted on stela, um, which is a stone monument. It's not quite a 3D monument, kind of like a billboard. Um, and they're involved in political religious activity, both the same to combine together. Right? When do we go to war? Well, we got to check our religious um, texts and uh, religious specialists to tell us when to go to war. We have to consult you know, the gods. Uh, one of the major things that the ruler did was acted as an intermediary between the gods and the people. So here's the people, here's the gods, and here's the ruler. And it was his job, usually his, although there were some female rulers in the Maya, mostly males though, to uh, supplicate on behalf of the people and guarantee that the, that the gods were giving things like rain and fertility to the people to help them survive. Um, this often was done through sacrifice. For example, the ruler would take obsidian blades and cut his uh, or her um, earlobes uh, or tongue and sometimes penis 
and bleed onto paper, that paper would be burned and it would go up uh, and be um, used by the god. So it was the shedding of blood by the ruler that um, enticed the gods to shed water and things like that. So a very important uh, person. And we know holy ruler because their name was Kahul Ahau. Ahau is derived from like the word speaker, kind of. Um, so they were an orator. Um, and then Kahul is from the root god. Uh, that means god. And then this is like why. So like a gaudy, uh, a gaudy ruler, like a G-O-D-Y, which isn't really a word, uh, but basically a godlike ruler. So they were somehow divine. Okay. And I talked about the pre-classic collapse, but a lot of what the classic is, um, is bouncing back after that collapse and um, amplifying the things that we saw in the beginning, bigger buildings, more complex societies, more complex agriculture, more complex art. Um, this is not a disturbingly crazy uh, subway map, although it kind of looks like a subway map. This is a schematic representation of how all the city-states, because a lot of the um, ancient Maya, they didn't live in like a Roman Empire or anything like that. It was much more a um, patchwork of cities that ruled kind of their area and then the next city over kind of ruled their area. And it was like a shifting, very similar to uh, Italy or Germany before unification. And so it was this shifting patchwork of, um, of cities and towns that would get into alliances or get into fights. And we know a lot of these relationships on this map, for example, the red lines between Tikal and Kalakmul, for example, those are conflicts. And the black lines are alliances. So like Tikal and Motul uh, were connected, Kalakmul and El Peru and Karakol and all these people, they had their own um, unified group that was in, at odds with Tikal. See like Tikal's enemy was Karakol, but Karakol's friend was Kalakmul, whose enemy was Tikal. So the enemy of my enemy is my enemy. Wait, no, that's not right. Enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? Um, and so we know all these things from hieroglyphic writings. We know sometimes, for example, that Tikal would give away one of its um, offspring. Um, you see the dotted line uh, to Dos Pilas, and they would uh, you know, uh, marry off one of the king's daughters to the ruler of Dos Pilas to cement that relation. So it was very you know, kind of a medieval, or if you watch Game of Thrones, you could probably do, you could uh, transplant a Game of Thrones-like show uh, in the ancient Maya world, and it would probably be pretty exciting. Uh, they also have outside influence. Teotihuacan is a site uh, just outside of Mexico City. Has anyone been to Teotihuacan or Mexico City? All right. Um, it, it was a large site just outside of Mexico City that was probably one of the most influential sites in the New World. And it was so influential, influential that it sent down people to the Maya area. Kind, uh, it's not really clear. It's called the Entrada or the Entrance. It's not really clear what happened, but somebody from central Mexico came down and made a really big impact, so much so that uh, the rulers at Tikal, which is kind of like this preeminent Maya site, um, record him on 
monuments and talk about him coming in and giving the right to rule to their ruler and bestowing. Um, and you can see the influence from central Mexico if you are, so this person has very Maya uh, kind of almost gaudy, I guess if you want to be uh, subjective about it, um, ornaments and completely covering his body. And then these guys on the side, these are central Mexican warriors. And you can tell they're central Mexican um, because they have these hooked um, sticks that are spear throwers. The guy's name was Spear Thrower Owl. They have uh, slightly less uh, crazy uh, adornment. They have these square um, textile shields, these uh, coyote tails that are attached to the back of their, um, of their belt. And then they have these um, feathery puffs on their knees. We don't know. The, that's their... I guess, ethnic dress. And so we know that these folks are from central Mexico, and they're there uh, to pass on this idea. Same thing happens at a site called Copan, and I'll show you a map where these two are, where um, the ruler, the founder of the dynasty, um, Yashkmo, this guy here, uh, actually, the top of this bench records him going to Teotihuacan and being there for some sort of ritual, probably some sort of installation, um, civil, religious ins installation um, activity. And then he comes all the way back to Copan and becomes the ruler. And so his right to rule comes from Teotihuacan for some reason. They also sent back a lot of um, architectural style. So this is expansion of Teotihuacan influence even over um, the Maya. Teotihuacan doesn't seem to be as large of a thing, though. It's, it's, it's odd because it's just this one site, and it has this great influence over this huge Maya area for some reason. It's not like it's ruling it or anything like that. So um, I was talking about Tikal, uh, which is up here in northern Guatemala. Here is uh, Copan down here. And then if I were to be showing you where uh, Teotihuacan is, it's like up over here off the map, really far away. Um, so these are the two sites we're really dealing with right now. Uh, Tikal is probably the preeminent site, not only because it is large, but because it was studied very early on. It was one of the most, um, they were able to excavate there when, when the rules were really lax. In the past, you could just like dig up an entire building and basically just pile everything in a giant pile. and. Now you can't do that. Now you have to be. Now you have to reconstruct everything you dig, and it makes it much more expensive. And so, like a part of the site, we're looking at a plan view. Like this North Acropolis, this whole feature is gone. It's gone. There's like a 30 meter pyramid covering it, and it's just gone. Um, luckily, there are a lot of other um, sites. Oh, um, you've probably all seen Tikal because. Um, a little movie franchise uh, used it in a pretty recognizable, maybe it's just recognizable because I'm an archaeologist. This is, so this is, uh, this is the site of Tikal here. These, all of these things are, um, I can show you on the map here. Okay. So that scene from Star Wars is actually showing. Uh, I'm sorry about that noise. Go full screen again, please. Right. Oh, there we go. Okay. It's actually uh, these two temples here. 
they're like uh, standing on this one and looking out over the site, and they can see these poking up over the trees. Um, fun story, uh, they originally wanted to go to South America, and they wanted uh, to shoot uh, exterior scenes in South America at some sites, and the government of Peru was like, no way, and the Guatemala's like, yeah, sure, come on in, do whatever you want. Um, Jabba the Hutt actually speaks Quechua, which is the ancestral language of the Inca. Fun fact. Okay, uh, so here are um, very typical Tikal buildings with these various levels, um, pier uh, with stairways going up. Not everybody could go up to the top. And remember, on top there probably was a building that was a temple, right? These weren't really used like the Egyptian pyramids as funerary monuments, although there are some cases of people buried under them. That wasn't the main point. Um, and here we are looking again at um, these two images that we just saw in the, in the Star Wars movies um, above that Acropolis. So this was all buried under a larger pyramid that has been completely taken apart. Um, just more artist renderings. OK, so um, fun side note, which is probably why we're behind, because I have all kinds of fun side notes. Um, anyone know why pyramids pop up at all kinds of different sites across the ancient world? Any guesses? Nobody wants to say aliens? Anybody? Yeah. Yes, uh, they're a great shape to build tall things because they're A, really stable, and B, they um, match a geological principle called the angle of repose. So if you were to take a handful of sand and just to drop it on a hard surface, it would kind of form, form a cone, right? And different sized pebbles and different sized granulates have different angles at which they rest naturally. And so the fact that you know, the Egyptians built pyramids and the Maya built pyramids and um, they're both triangles doesn't or pyramids doesn't mean that you know, aliens or some. It's just that that's how, that's how physics works. These things are really stable. And even when they collapse, Really, you just lose these corners, and they kind of fill in the rubbly the spots there, and just become more um, pyramidal rather than cake boxes on top of cake boxes. If you go to Iraq, where they built ziggurats, which were much more kind of like big square buildings, they've collapsed because this there's a lot of stress here on these corners because they're just being held in by whatever you know building material they can use. Gravity is pulling them out. And down, and that's actually what happens. They kind of break down like this. So, if you built big square buildings, they're not going to look like squares anymore. Um, and these folks were around long enough that they they got that. Okay. So, uh, moving on to the late classic. We have even more history. Uh, more. Most of our. Not most, uh, yeah, perhaps the majority of our historical reconstruction, our historical understanding comes from monuments from the late classic. Um, there was more writing, it was uh, more easily accessible, and there were more monuments recorded. They also have it uh, written on walls and things like that. I've, we've seen some um, murals already, but those are, they're probably very common, they just haven't lasted as well as the stone monuments. I already mentioned city states. Um, but to give you an idea, um, here we're looking at um, central, southern, or northern Guatemala, southern Mexico. Here's Tikal. 
Um, and if you look, each one of them has a glyph by it. These glyphs represent, uh, it's probably like a royal lineage, because what it says is um, Kahula House, a holy ruler of, and then it has a little thing in the, mid, in the lower part here that changes. That's what actually names the site. Like Yashchilan is like split pachan, it's like split sky. That's the sign for sky, and then it's got a cleft in it, and it was in this like big valley, right? So they're probably named after the um, either a toponym, so named after something on the topography, or named after something we don't really know. Like Tikal was called Motul, which means bundle. Bundle of what? We don't know. Um, but that was, you know, holy ruler of bundles was the name of the ruler of, of Tikal, right? But um, these lines between them kind of demarcate where the border zone would be. However, um, I argue that it's unlikely they had like real borders. In only a few places do we see like border patrols or border um, defenses. Usually they were more interested in protecting their central precinct and letting the hinterland do whatever. And even if they did have borders, at least in the Aztec times, even when they had borders, they let people cross. It was only military people that they would stop. Like um, it's recorded that even during times of conflict for the Aztec later on, people would go shopping at the market in the town that they're at war with because commerce must continue. Uh, you know, whether or not there's a war going on doesn't matter. We're still going to, you know, it'd be like if we went to war with, oh, I don't know, pick country now. Uh, so let's say we go to war with Germany, but we can still buy all the German cars and whatever we want. And they're going to buy all of our, what do they buy from us? Apple computers? I don't know. Um, so uh, there was a complex uh, system of social hierarchy, and we know that from the writing system. Um, for example, so here's Ahau, that's that um, symbol I was talking about earlier, that means ruler. But beneath the rulers, and uh, in addition to just being called you know, the king, uh, you had all kinds of these other things like head ruler or first of the earth. We don't really know what that denoted, but it was certainly a rulership role. Um, there's uh, first of the earth again, there's heir. Uh, supreme ruler, there's only four of these guys. Um, and then there's a whole bunch of different permutations and nuances that we don't really fully understand. Like what's a first spear lord? Not quite sure. But we do know that, for example, Sahal means kind of like governor or subordinate ruler. So Tikal might have um, its vassals, right? So it's, it's almost medieval sounding in some ways. Um, but there, yeah, there was a lot. There's a, we can read it, but we don't necessarily know the social connotation of all these things yet. Because if you think about it, all the writing was on billboards. So let's say you know we get all wiped out by an atomic war or something, and then in a thousand years someone goes to Washington and they go to like the Washington Monument and they read, you know, Washington was president from this date to this date, and they go to you know the Vietnam Memorial and there's a whole bunch of names, and they go to you know all these different sites that commemorate many of our rulers, but. They're just going to give you a couple of the dates and like really big headlines, like the headlines from newspapers. So we have things like that. We'll be like, oh, Bacab so-and-so defeated this other country or you know, this other uh, site. Be like, OK, well, what's a Bacab? They don't say that. You know? So uh, we only have the headlines. So although we know the words, we don't necessarily know exactly all the niceties. Um, I'm going to shift up to the north. 
don't know why I have a picture of Chen right there. Um, when we start to talk about the collapse, and I'm going to briefly touch on it now, and then I'm going to come back to it now. Right now, I'm just going to give you the facts, Jack. Um, between 800 and 900 CE, so 800 and 900 CE, many of the large cities, including Tikal, um, and many of those that were just on the map of all the polities, it's a good word to know, polity. Polity is just uh, a political unit. Uh, the United States is a polity. Uh, the Vatican is a polity, so really a, an autonomous political unit. So uh, between 800 and 900, many of the large cities or these polities collapsed. And by what I mean by collapse is they stopped making all of their monuments. We see not a lot of construction. They're not building new temples or monuments. Um, we see a reduction of you know, writing. Basically, everything that I talked, like the big fancy shiny stuff, basically stopped. And that's what's called the collapse. And I'll talk about why that might be problematic in a minute. We see major population decline in these cities. And it is especially prominent in the southern lowlands. So remember, here's the highlands, northern lowlands. Southern lowlands are this northern Guatemala, southern um, Mexico, Belize, that area. This area was the hardest hit. Um, of the collapse region. It didn't hit all places at the same time. It wasn't like it happened one year to another. A lot of places were fairly gradual. One of the places that it didn't really take as much of an effect was up north where I've worked. So let's take a look at the site of Uxmal. Uxmal um, in uh, Mexico, or for Maya words in Mexico, the X has a uh, SH sound, so Uxmal. U-X-M-A-L, Ushmal. Um, it was a late pre-classic site. So during the time that Tikal is collapsing and everybody from the town is scattering, this site is growing up and becoming a really important regional center. Um, and very likely the cultural, eh, I don't want to say capital, but one of the most influential cities in the region. And it's a large-ish site. Um, you'll notice that it has a wall, something we don't see in the south. Again, um, it's not like they have border walls or anything like this. They protect the inner precinct. Um, we'll see a wall or two in the south in a little bit, but um, it has a completely different type of construction. It's a lot more uh, muted. Uh, it's not as grand. I'd say maybe it's, in some ways, it's more intricate. Uh, they're working with different stone, number one. This is all limestone. And they're not building, they do build some large pyramids, but the real hallmark of the north is this kind of really plain Jane bottom portion of the buildings. And then up top, they have these really complex mosaic stone kind of like puzzles that they put uh, together. Um, each one of these are individual blocks cut in uh, repeating patterns and then fitted together. So they have a lot of buildings with this very distinct style. Um, this is called the nunnery quadrangle. Okay, uh, this is the house of the turtles because you can't see it here. But each one of these little knob, uh, these little buttons here, they're really cute little turtles. Should have had a blown up of those, but a very uh, different landscape. It's this is like uh, not very high in the air, so uh, the 
It's on a platform, but the trees are much lower. It's not a tropical forest. It is a tropical scrubland, uh, very dry. And uh, that's me from a long time ago. But they had uh, quite the sense of humor. Um, these are giant phalluses that used to work as uh, water, like gargoyles, uh, from the buildings. Uh, they put them all in this pile because it was considered unseemly to have uh, giant phalli all over the site. Uh, but they had a whole temple of, of, of phalluses. Um, and one thing I want to point out here, where's a good picture of them? Kind of hard to see, but on this corner is a repeat. It looks like kind of like Gonzo. It's a repeating mask um, with square eyes, circular, and then it's got this. Um, from the front, it just looks like this, but from the side, it is a big kind of Gonzo nose out the front, and then usually some sort of teeth. Kind of looks like a weirdo jack o' lantern. It's called a chalk mask. Chalk is the rain god. Um, and there are tons of chalk masks in the northern lowlands. Uh, many buildings uh, of this pook style, which is what this is called, have these chalk masks. It's, uh, it's like they're obsessed with the rain god. And if you think about it, it's a very dry area. Uh, I'm going to come back to the aridity of this area and why it might have something to do with the fact that they didn't really see it collapse. Because at the time that this city was thriving, their cousins in the southern lowlands were um, scattering and declining. Okay. Uh, another major site of the north is Yashuna. Uh, Yashuna, here, uh, ignore this uh, lovely person, a uh, friend of mine uh, here, uh, but you see this line of stones, which is also right here. Um, this, is a, this is a road, one of those sock bays. Remember I told you about the uh, causeways? It's a 100 kilometer long or 62 mile long sock bay. They made a 100-kilometer-long road between Yashuna and Koba, which speaks not only to the amount of um, labor they had at, on hand, but uh, something of the political ramifications of, or the political relationship of you know, sites across this region. They're connecting themselves uh, via a, a giant road. Um, I mapped the first mm, kilometer or two of this road uh, when I was in grad school. And we had to hire, you know, like 20 workers with machetes to like clear the road off so we could see it and map it. And then the next year, uh, a forest fire just burned it all down. And we could have done the work that took us like six to eight weeks to do. Uh, it would have taken us not much time at all. Um, it's kind of frustrating, but that's how it goes. Um, so one of the interesting things at Yashuna, which is a lot more um, busted down than Ushmal, is it has a lot of these same sorts of kind of plug and play little motif um, carved stones, but they're not, but it's not nearly as grand. And they're kind of just like plugged in here on a much older pyramid because, like I said, these um, buildings really uh, accreted over time. So what we have at Yashuna is kind of like a, a pyramid, and then they're like, oh, now it's, it's later, and this Ushmal-style architecture is really big. So we're going to build like an Ushmal-style building on the front of the pyramid to make it look like a Ushmal, like we're friends with Ushmal, or we're being influenced by them. Somehow we're uh, paying homage to them. It's this really intense interaction. But in the north, we don't have writing as uh, very rarely. It seems like it was mostly written on murals. The murals have all been destroyed. 
So we get, all, there's a nice view of the uh, corbel arch, uh, kind of blown away. Um, so we have all this really inter interesting interaction, but we can't tell what's going on. The only um, recorded uh, inscriptions here at Yashuna are on the balustrade of a stairway, and they've been rained on, and they're completely destroyed except for one glyph, which is the glyph that uh, says, um, attack. <laughs> so it's basically saying like so-and-so was attacked by so-and-so, but we don't know who the so-and-sos are in that, um, in that instance. So as we move into the post-classic, we lose that history, which is kind of a bummer. It makes it a lot harder to reconstruct what's going on because we don't have the names of the people, unfortunately. So like we have some stela, this is from Koba, but as you can see from the extensive uh, whiteness on that, uh, those are all eroded glyphs. So basically every er glyph is eroded. A lot of this has to do with the fact that they were carving in big pieces of limestone, and limestone is much softer than the material they were building with in the south, a bummer. We do have these really amazing and great murals. Uh, these are from Chichen Itza. Um, and here you can see the houses that people are living in, and you see what looks like a battle scene with people. Um, if you look, they have, uh, it's definitely two groups of people, and you can tell they're different by their hair uh, or headdresses and shield styles. So we have at least two different groups here uh, fighting one another. It's a pretty amazing battle scene, pretty badly eroded, and that's one of the better preserved murals, which is a little frustrating. Okay. Remember, as I said, uh, at the time that the south was collapsing, the north was really ramping up and going. So this area up here, well, the south collapsed. Um, they were doing quite well. Um, one of the most influential and important sites in the north um, is Chichen Itza. So Ushmal and Yashuna represent really a, a native Maya site. Right? It's all Maya architecture, Maya uh, iconography. Um, very likely run by ethnic Maya. At Chichen Itza, we see something completely different, kind of like the influx of, of Teo, um, Teotihuacan in the classic. We see something coming in from outside. And I don't mean aliens. I mean from central Mexico. Uh, so they're alien in the foreigner sense, not in the extraterrestrial sense. Chichen Itza has, sorry, I don't need pictures with me. Um, I know it's like, oh, it's just a different pyramid, but the, the style of the pyramid and the style of building, even though it has kind of that same look of like the fancy top and the lower bottom being similar, it's got snake columns and it's got snakes here. And there's this shift from Chalk, the rain god, to snake uh, iconography, snake deity uh, called Quetzalcoatl. Um, and this type of uh, pyramid with these drop-down like toothy things here, it's all very central Mexican. And so it, what appears to have happened is a coastal trading group uh, called the Itza um, moved into the area. They probably saw a power vacuum. It's hard to say exactly what happened, but uh, there seems to have been some sort of power vacuum or they made a power grab. They came in and established the site at Chichen Itza and they kind of like gangster style took over the entire peninsula's uh, trade. Because although in the classic, uh, power was vested in a person by the gods and the divine right to rule, 
in the post-classic, it seems like mercantile empires, which is kind of a cool shift if you think about it. It's very similar to what happened um, as the medieval period ended and the Enlightenment happened in Europe, and we started to see the rise of um, the merchant class and where um, people with a lot of money and power in terms of trade started to become more powerful than the former ruling class. That's kind of what's happening here. Um, and the Itza had central Mexican roots, or at least trade relations with central Mexico, and so they brought in this new iconography saying, hey, we're something different, we're something new. Um, so they have ball courts, but they're completely different. They've got these very stark walls up and down. If you ever go to Chichen Itza, they'll make you stand in the middle and then clap, and then it bounces back and forth, and they're like, they had amazing engineers, they can make it echo. It's like, it's not, we, yes, they had great engineers, but it's not hard to make two flat walls that echo. Like, they make it sound like it's some sort of NASA project. Um, but we had very different uh, interiors. Remember I showed you that corbel arch? You know, it's a fake arch, kind of like this, and so you have the very big, blocky, heavy buildings, and this would be the interior, right? And so you have very small interiors with these huge um, buildings on top of you. At Chichen Itza, they brought in columns, which is kind of a quantum leap, because instead of having this big, very narrow, long room with this big, ugly roof over you, you can build now much larger rooms with columns. And what's missing in this picture are the wooden lintels that would have built the roof over you. And so there would have been wooden lintels between all of these, um, and eventually then a plaster surface and all the water would run off. It made interior spaces possible. Um, so it's a completely different way of building. Uh, it's very Central Mexican. It's new and exciting and brought in. Um, and this is, you know, this is their capital. This would have been the, uh, the site where everyone would have come and just been blown away. Oh my goodness, I'm walking inside and it's like a big room. It just would have blown people's minds. As it continues to do today, there's tons of tourists. Uh, this is the Caracol. It is a solar observatory and there are not many left, but the, the uh, windows that do exist line up with different celestial observation points. And so you could uh, identify different times of year um, and predict different types of uh, solar events using that. So again, more columns. Okay. So that's, those are the major sites that I'm going to visit. Now we're briefly going to run through uh, the agricultural system, trade society, and natural disasters uh, that afflicted or supported this area. And then we're going to talk about the collapse um, and why that might be a misnomer. Agriculture. The basics here, it was uh, held up by the three sisters. Most people ate what were called the three sisters, which is corn, beans, squash. Not only uh, did these grow together well, they also formed a pretty complete protein when you made uh, tortillas that are slaked in lime. Not lime, the citric, but lime, the, um, the chemical. Um, it releases amino acids that, when eaten with beans, gives you a complete protein, which is really great in a place where there's not abundant game, although there certainly was like venison and turkey and dog and other birds that people ate. It wasn't like an everyday thing to eat meat. And so by having a, uh, a food system that emphasized something, a plant-based full protein, 
they're able to avoid or uh, not have to put up with the expense or problem of eating meat all the time. Um, interestingly, uh, tortillas don't come in until, and uh, tomatoes and a lot of the things that we think of as like Mexican food don't come in until Chichen Itza rises to power and the central Mexican influence comes in. We can tell when Chichen Itza has had an influence on a site because they get these bowls. Um, they're um, clay bowls, and in the bottom when they're wet, they put cross marks in them, so it's like a grater. And so they can grind up tomatoes and make salsa. Um, when that happens, we know it's Chichen Itza influence because they're, that didn't exist before. Um, so we can kind of trace their influence. But the Maya were more tamale people. And so if we, uh, it's going to be a long run, hold on. Go all the way back to that mural. Oop, did I just pass it? Yeah. Right here, she's got tamales. Those are tamales. Those aren't, you know, uh, tortillas or anything like that. So uh, the Maya were mostly eating tamale rather than um, uh, burritos or anything like that. That's much more of a central Mexican thing. And so um, uh, I mentioned they grow well together because if you plant corn, right? Here's your corn plant. The beans uh, will grow up the corn plant and not hurt it, and at the same time, uh, the corn roots uh, will absorb nitrogen that the beans, which are legumes, and beans fix nitrogen in the soil. So that's great for corn roots. And at the same time, they would plant squash right next to it, and so squash would grow over the ground, and it has big leaves, and those leaves would blot out the sun and keep weeds down. So they would plant corn, beans, and squash together, and they grew in a sympathetic, uh, sympathetic relationship, right? So, uh, or a symbiotic. Uh, not, I don't know if I'd call it symbiotic. It's not like one couldn't live without the other, but they did better in what's called polyculture. Um, polyculture um, is opposed to what we have as monoculture, where, you know, if you've ever been anywhere uh, outside of this, or even in the city, you can see a vast field of just corn or just soybeans or just wheat, right? They were growing fields with all kinds of stuff in it. Also, in the southern lowlands, we run into what are called chinampas. That's the Mexican, or the uh, Mexican, uh, Nahuatl, uh, Aztec word. Chinampas, C-H-I-N-A-M-P-A-S, chinampas. Chinampas are kind of like raised beds. Uh, if you garden today, we make raised beds, but they were built in swamps. And so I think I've drawn this before where you have swamp, um, and then you drive down stakes, and you dig out, you dredge out canals and throw that muck up on top of here, fresh mud on top of here. You plant willow trees um, to help hold this all together. And then the water line is very high, and so the plants just have to reach that water line and they get permanent water. Excuse me. The water helps regulate the temperature. It keeps from frosting. Um, you pull up these. Um, aquatic weeds and toss them on there for fertilizer. Fish grow and uh, swim around in the canals and you can eat them. It, uh, you can raise ducks, all kinds of things. It's a great growing system, very productive for the area, very labor intensive, um, but it's dependent on wetlands. And so, as we'll see in a minute, um, precipitation very likely 
uh, dried up during the, um, during the collapse. And so if you're a city dependent on these hyperproductive chinampas, and then the wetlands dry up, you have a problem. You have too many people living in too small of a space to support themselves. These still exist today. Um, I just had a, just read an article yesterday in the New York Times about how they are uh, in danger of collapsing because Mexico City used to be built on a lake, but there's very few lake areas left, and now um, these chinampas are actually uh, faced with extinction, even though they've survived the 500 years since uh, Spanish conquest. Okay, so let's get into trade. The Maya were prolific traders. This is a very simplified map. There were two main trade routes, uh, not routes, uh, vehicles, and not literal vehicles, of course. But there is the, uh, what I would call the, um, the highway of the marine trade route that went all the way around the Yucatan Peninsula. Um, and then there were the terrestrial trade routes. However, a lot of the ter terrestrial trade routes were on rivers because the Maya didn't um, build roads didn't use wheels for transportation, they didn't have carts, they didn't have animals that were used for be uh, as beasts of burden. And so if you can put it in a canoe and move it, even if you have to go twice as far, three times as far, as far or even four times as far, it's still more efficient than carrying it. Um, we'll see this in, the, um, in Rome as well. Uh, there's some crazy amount of markup when you carry things over land. It's like 50 times more expensive just because of the um, difficulty of doing that, maintaining the roads, the carts, the animals, the drivers, all these things. So um, most of these routes follow the rivers and places like uh, uh, Tikal, which is right here, was between this major river, the Usumacinta, and then the rivers of Belize, and Tikal was right in the middle. So you would canoe your salt or whatever to here, and then you'd overland it to Tikal, overland it to the rivers, and then get back on the, on the highway. So it was kind of at a, a juncture of the trade route system, which is one of the reasons that it became so large. Um, some of the major commodities that were traded were salt, and I've done a lot of work on the salt uh, industry of the north uh, coast, where they used uh, large pans of water um, that would be dried by the sun, and they would take the salt out. Jade is a type of uh, green stone, mostly found in the Motagua River. Even though we find jade all over, it was um, there wasn't really much gold at all in the Maya area. Very, very, very little gold. Jade was the precious material uh, at the pinnacle of of value. This green stone, um, cacao, so chocolate, uh, was grown in um, steamy, usually coastal regions. Obsidian is that glass volcanic stone which was very highly prized not only for making like uh, arrowheads um, and uh, spear heads but just day-to-day -day, uh, blades. Basically um, most of the cutting tools depended on are called compound tools. They're like um, for example there was a sword that looks like a cricket bat that the Aztec used, and they would just get blades, little tiny um, blades of obsidian or volcanic glass, and uh, they would embed them into the sword like this. And so imagine getting a package of razor blades, 
cutting a line down the edge of your uh, cricket bat and then gluing razor blades into it. It's pretty nasty. I mean, they supposedly could take the head off a horse. So, you know, pretty nasty. Uh, cotton was grown uh, in some areas. Feathers, like the uh, Quetzal birds that I mentioned before. Um, so yeah, pelts, honey, ceramics. Uh, honey, they had a stingless type of bee that kept, uh, that uh, wasn't very efficient. Uh, let me rephrase that. It didn't produce as much honey as the European bees. So when the Europeans came, they brought bees and they interbred the stingless bees with the, uh, with the European bees. And now they made more honey, but now they sting you. So that kind of stinks. Uh, nowadays, from the south, the uh, Africanized bees that escaped from a testing lab in Brazil in the 1950s has moved up and now there are Africanized bees there. And it's terrifying because uh, we've been out in the forest before and you hear like a jet engine kind of coming over the top of the trees and it is an entire colony of Africanized bees. And so you just stand still and they go over and don't see you. It is... Um, is what you're supposed to do. Fun survival tip, if you're ever being chased by a hive of Africanized bees, you're supposed to run through the brush. And the bees have trouble getting through the brush to chase you. So you run through the brush. Except in Mexico where we were working, all the brush had thorns. Some of the trees had sap that would burn your skin because it was caustic, like battery acid. And then um, some of the trees had thorns and basically fire ants. So running through <laughs> the forest like that to get away from the bees really was gonna be just as bad. So, oh, anyway, bees. Um, as I said before, no beasts of burden except for people. These are Aztec bearers, but the same thing would have been done. They were professional bearers and they bore everything on their foreheads on a tump line. I'm sure their backs were just, oh. Um, and they would go for days, um, you know, eight hours, 10 hours a day between cities uh, carrying different things. There's even pictures of people being born where they'll put a chair and they'll lift up the chair and the person will be sitting in the chair and the person will carry someone over and they could carry like 100 pounds a day or 100 pound loads for the whole day. I mean, these guys were, they were tough. Uh, so the, the uh, much better option would be ocean if you could do it. All right. Um, I don't know if I have time to get through society. I probably don't. Uh, let's try. We're a little behind. Okay. So again, I've said this before. Society was not egalitarian. It was not, uh, you know, the lowest ranking people. The peasants uh, probably made up 90% of the population, but they were seen as lesser than artisans who made a lot of the things that the uh, noble people wore. And then you have the top is the royal family, and the top of the royal family is the ruler. So there's definitely a stratified society. There were layers and layers and layers of the haves, the have-nots, however you want to divide them up. There was certainly strong social stratification to the point that people at the top were almost considered to be a different species. They could not intermarry, uh, let alone have kids with people outside of their caste. Um, you can think of it kind of as a caste system in the um, old Hindu sense. It wasn't just straight up exploitation, or at least there was a story that was told within the society about how they were all helping each other out. And uh, I argue that basically farmers would provide tribute and labor 
to the rulers. Remember, they're not giving them bags of corn for tax. They're giving them time to build their uh, temples uh, and cities. And they would do like civic works as well. They would build canals and they would build things for the general upkeep of society. It wasn't just building stuff for the rulers. The rulers would provide blood and sacrifices to the gods, which, you know, uh, the scientifically uh, atheist-minded person might say, oh, so they're just like doing nothing uh, and getting a whole bunch of stuff from the farmers. But you have to remember this is a society and, you know, very true of of the society was a deeply religious society where this would never have been questioned. Um, and even farmers themselves would give blood um, to the gods. Um, so blood and sacrifices. And I'm not talking like human sacrifice. Uh, when we think about human sacrifice, we're probably thinking more of the Aztecs. They did a lot more like full on, like cut your head off, rip your heart out sort of stuff. The Maya were much more auto-sacrifice, sacrificing your own blood, uh, which is a big difference. Um, the gods uh, would provide rain and sustenance for the farmers, and then it would go in a circular pattern. So if, let's say, in a scenario where there's a big drought, so the gods aren't providing their drought and, uh, or their rain, and so your sustenance collapses, might not the farmers get upset with the rulers saying, hey, what are we giving you all this tribute for? Why are we building you these palaces? Why are we letting you lead us? Why are you failing in your obligation to the gods? Because why else would the gods for, forsake us and not give us rain? And so you can see why perhaps uh, when we see a major drought, that was one of the contributing factors to why we see an abandonment of these large cities and all the things that the rulers thought were really cool, like the big buildings and the monuments, all of a sudden dried up. Hmm. But we'll talk about that next time. Thanks for listening to this low-tech lecture. Find out more by visiting our website, lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. There you'll find the low-tech podcast, our blog, our event calendar, and other things going on around the Institute. You can subscribe to this lecture or our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and many other podcasting apps. The background music is Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto No. 2 in C minor and is in the public domain. This podcast is under the Creative Commons Attribution and Sharealike License, meaning you're free to use and share it as long as you provide credit.